Hello and welcome. I'm Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of the book A to Z of Detoxing, The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Our Toxic Exposures, and now host of the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast, where I sit down with everyone from beekeepers to teachers, chefs to doctors, and all of the mothers, fathers, and children in between. Collectively, we'll learn tips and tricks for practical, non-toxic living. I look forward to sharing my humbling and never-ending journey with all of you. Dr. Joseph Braun, a professor of epidemiology at Brown University, is interested in studying the potential health consequences of environmental chemical exposures in pregnant women, infants, and children. More specifically, he has a special interest in studying how early life chemical exposures, ones that we can also modify, may influence obesity and neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD and autism. Dr. Braun has been identified by peers as one of the top 20 pioneers under 40 in environmental public health. Dr. Braun was chosen for his exceptional work, according to a press release by the nonprofit organization Collaborative on Health and the Environment. Dr. Braun's work will pioneer environmental health science and catalyze policies and actions to protect the health of children, families, and communities. In August 2017, I spoke to Dr. Braun. I wanted to learn what inspired him to research how early life exposures may affect our long-term health. And I was also curious how he applies his expertise into his daily life. In addition to getting these questions answered, I got Joe's top six detox recommendations for the average person. They involve drinking water, canned foods, plastics, carpets, cleaning, and organic foods. Whether you're already a parent, considering having children, or if you're just interested in healthy living, you'll learn valuable information and helpful tips by listening to this conversation with Joe about our toxic exposures. Also remember that you can review the transcript for this on my website at nontoxicliving.tips. This is an important topic that we must keep learning more about. I've been looking at your body of work and I'm so excited about your research, what you're focused on. When I was working on my book, it just seemed like there wasn't that much research on prenatal exposures and the potential health effects on the unborn child. And to see that you've done so much research focused on that is really, really exciting. Yeah. And I think when I looked at your book, you know, I think you were sort of on the cusp of when a lot of the research that's come out to date just wasn't there yet. Yeah. It's it's really emerged in the last couple of years. Well, I'm really glad that it's attracted more interest, more experts and funding because it deserves it. So I really wanted to just get to know you better and, you know, just even you as a human being and learn more about what led you to this pretty new and emerging field that will attract a lot more attention, but it's kind of unique that you ended up in this expertise. Yeah, so the route was sort of a circuitous one. You know, I grew up in Wisconsin, but was really interested in science from a very early age. I had some very good science teachers in, in high school. And I think that was really the first factor that led to my decision to pursue a career in public health, because 
I always liked science and I knew I wanted to be a scientist taking as many chemistry, biology, and physics classes that I could at, at, in high school. And surprisingly, I wanted to be a particle physicist for a while, but realized I needed to be a lot better at math. And I just was not good enough at math. That was really what led me to science, the science end of it. And then I think the health end of it was a combination of things. But maybe the one that was most influential is that I actually have a brother with Down syndrome. And from a very early age, I learned a lot about biology and genetics that most people probably wouldn't know about. And in fact, I remember being a kid and my mother showing me the karyotype from my brother that confirmed he had Down syndrome because to confirm, at least in that time, to confirm the diagnosis, they would separate out all his chromosomes and count how many chromosomes he had to determine that he had an extra chromosome. And I just thought that that was very interesting. And that's really what led me to, at least into the science end of things. From the public health stand, getting to public health was sort of, that was far more convoluted in that. I started as a biochemistry major, being very interested in health and science and basic biology, but finding that I wasn't as interested in the basic aspect of it, where it was so unapplied. And it was really when I was going back to nursing school after I had worked in a few labs that I discovered I really liked working with people and I liked this practical application of health to people. And I discovered epidemiology at that time and found that I got to ask very pragmatic questions about health and science and then answer them with data from people. So it was during nursing school that I actually worked with my first mentor, Dr. Laura Anderko, who gave me uh, quite a bit of latitude to conduct analyses with some publicly available data. And that led to one of my first publications. And we were focused on studying environmental determinants of learning disabilities in children. So that experience was what really solidified my interest in studying children's environmental health and using epidemiological tools to do it. And so from your perspective, since you started, what have we learned? You know, when I started, I was very naive. I remember thinking that this was the most important research ever and that it's going to change the world and everyone should know about it. But I think at that time, when I started doing this work, it was at the beginning of sort of this second wave of studies that was coming out, studying early life determinants of children's health. Some of the first ones were some very classic studies done by investigators at the University of Cincinnati and Boston Children's Hospital studying the neurotoxicity of lead exposure. And it was this sort of next wave of studies looking at things like PCBs and then some even later studies starting in California and Cincinnati and other places that were studying a whole host of environmental toxicants and children's health. I came in right when that wave was coming up, and I think I've been riding it since, but I felt like that was, I, I hit that at a good time. By studying children's health first, it really led me backwards to think about other determinants of children's health, which would include the prenatal period. Yeah. I just learned about the importance of prenatal exposures, I think, after I had my second child. My third is four years old, so it was maybe four or five years ago, I just became aware of the idea that health issues that may manifest either in childhood or even later on as an adult may have fetal origins. Is this a relatively new area? 
So this has been something that we've known about for quite some time with respect to a couple of other pharmaceutical agents. So the, the two stories that I think are the most classic examples of that are the, the stories of diethylstilbestrol and thalidomide. So for diethylstilbestrol, this was a synthetic estrogen that was prescribed to women in the mid-20th century to prevent stillbirth and spontaneous abortion. And it was given to millions of women. And it was discovered by some researchers and physician, a physician up at Massachusetts General Hospital that this drug was causing vaginal clear cell carcinoma in the daughters born to women that took this drug during pregnancy. And Dr. Herbst was his name, actually. And he discovered this cluster of vaginal clear cell carcinoma cases among these very young girls or young adults. And this is a disease that normally crops up after menopause. But he observed this rash of girls in the Boston area who, who had this disease. And through interviewing their mothers, found out that most, if not all of them, had taken diethylstilbestrol during their pregnancy. And so this started a whole series of studies that continue to this day looking at the long-term health effects of that exposure and finding that mothers who took this drug had increased risk of a variety of reproductive problems as well as other cancers besides vaginal clear cell carcinoma. So it's this, I think, that has really established this developmental origins idea that these exposures may not produce overt birth defects like things like thalidomide, which was a teratogen and produced infants with, with limb defects. And so I think it's thinking that some of these agents aren't just going to produce overt birth defects or these very serious clinical diseases that you can observe right away, but that they may manifest later on in childhood or even into adulthood. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up that example because I didn't even know about this part of our history until I researching for my book. And if it weren't for me doing that research, which I mean, most women are not researching toxic exposures that their family may encounter. It was only in that research did I start reading about, I refer to the drug as DES. I could never pronounce the full name, but I read about this history and I thought, wow, I wish I knew about this sooner. Most of the public is not aware of this important part of our history. My physicians who are really wonderful, they don't even extend the idea to everyday life, like being conservative, maybe about taking Tylenol if you're pregnant or other sorts of exposures. So I think in the scientific community, it's an important part of the history of epidemiology. But for the public, a lot of people aren't really aware of that. You're right. I don't think it's something that is on a lot of the public's radar. And even from the physician standpoint, I think outside of a very small group of us who do this work, it's not something that's in the mainstream consciousness. It gets attention from time to time. You know, there have been Time magazine covers talking about the first nine months of your life and how important they are, referring to the fetal period. But it's something that I don't think a lot of physicians think about. Again, not outside of this realm, probably due to their training that they're not necessarily being exposed to that during their training, during medical school and residency, and that there's not a lot of chemicals and exposures that we know with certainty might actually cause problems in children or later on in life, with the exception of, you know, the handful that we've really extensively studied, like lead and mercury and PCBs and tobacco smoke, for instance. And so I think a lot of physicians don't have that knowledge base to really advise women in a meaningful way without creating anxiety and alarm. And so that's often why I think that that doesn't enter their consciousness in some of their practice. Yeah, that's why having this conversation is so important, just so patients can just be aware that this important dialogue doesn't even happen. 
Yeah, and so there have been some studies that have been now conducted on the granddaughters, really. You know, so it's the granddaughters of these women who were taking the drug, and there is some evidence that there may be effects of that drug on the granddaughters. And that becomes very interesting to look at because, you know, when we think about it, if you're a woman, when you're in your mother as a fetus or baby before you're born, all of your eggs that you're ever going to have in your life are there, right there during the beginning of gestation. And whatever your mother is exposed to, you're exposed to, and your eggs are exposed to. So your mother is exposing her grandchildren, potential grandchildren, to whatever she's being exposed to. And this has led to this idea that there could be these trans or intergenerational effects of these exposures that extend beyond just one generation. Would you speak more about the second drug you mentioned, thalidomide? Yeah, so thalidomide was a drug used to treat morning sickness. It was used in Europe and actually wasn't approved for use here in the United States. And in Europe, they observed a series of cases of children being born with limb defects. And they attributed it to use of thalidomide. That was part of the reason why it was never approved for use here in the United States. That's another very you know, famous example of, of a pharmaceutical agent that can have a, a very profound effect on the developing fetus. And it's been very well studied such that they've really narrowed down the window of development that the exposure had to occur in during gestation. And in a very narrow window within the first trimester, and what's interesting about it is that that exposure needs to occur during the first trimester in order to elicit these limb defects. And it has to do with the fact that that's when your limbs are actually developing. And exposure later on in pregnancy does not seem to matter or affect the risk of these limb defects. So this has led to us just thinking more about these finer windows of vulnerability or, or periods of heightened vulnerability where it might not just be about pregnancy, but it could be about these narrower windows during pregnancy when there's specific biological processes going on that would be sensitive to that environmental agent. Again, when I read about that story, I was blown away. And it reminded me of a time when I was pregnant and I had Coxsackie virus, which is really common among children and really rare among adults. And similar to the chickenpox, I was told once people are exposed as children and Symptoms don't even necessarily manifest. And then you have an immunity towards them. But if you've never gotten it or been hard to imagine, I was not exposed to it as a child. But when I was seven months pregnant with my third child, I got a really serious case of it. And it was pretty unbearable. And I was talking to my father, who's an OBGYN, and I said, should I, my OBGYN recommended I take some medication. I forget what it is. And he's like, well, if you can bear it, I would just avoid it. And I said, why? And he said, well, you just don't know what it might do to the baby. When I later read about thalidomide, I was so glad I was extra conservative. And I think there's, yeah, for a lot of pharmaceuticals, there's there's concern over that. And, and there's, I think there's a growing movement towards understanding more of what these, what pharmaceuticals could do to the developing fetus. Shauna Swan at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, who you might've met, has been doing a lot of work around acetaminophen and its potential effects on the developing fetus. Others have been doing this as well. But I think there's a broad interest in studying some of these things that we assume are safe as pharmaceuticals to determine whether or not they could have potential long-term health consequences. Yeah, the developing science seems to be underscoring that we just be as conservative as possible during the prenatal period because 
What we do know is that there are critical windows of vulnerability. When people talk about proof of harm, you can only know what's been studied in depth, but there are tens of thousands of chemicals. And so it's just impossible to know what's safe and what's not. Yeah. And the other thing I would just add is, you know, for chemicals, that's certainly, I think it's easier to say we should avoid them. I think for pharmaceuticals, balancing act sometimes for some medications, you know, for women who might have epilepsy or be subject to seizures, the risk associated with having a seizure to the fetus could be as or bad, as worse or worse than the medication you take to treat and prevent seizures. So it's this balance for some of these drugs where it's determining, you know, what's the consequences of leaving this disease or, or condition untreated versus the medication that could treat it or prevent it. And, and that's the balancing act that physicians are making, obstetricians are making often with their patients. And there's uncertainties there. And that's, that's yeah. what makes it difficult. Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. So in your career, like which chemicals were you first attracted towards studying? So when I started with this, one of my mentors said to me that, because I started studying lead exposure and tobacco, which had been studied a lot at the time that I started doing work on this in the early 2000s. And one of my mentors, Bruce Lanfear, said to me, you know, that, that lead and tobacco are not a growth industry for, for environmental chemicals that we want to study, in that we know they're bad. You know, additional studies telling us that they're bad aren't going to really push the science forward that much more. That must have been around 2005 or six while I was in graduate school. He said that to me and I said, I thought, okay, I'm going to go and learn about some new chemicals and mm -hmm. learn about some new exposures. And I was at a conference and I said, I'm going to learn about everything I can about BPA and phthalates at this conference. And so I watched every talk I could on BPA and phthalates and read every paper I could get my hands on. Those were the first other set of chemicals that I started studying. And as you know, and those are potential endocrine disrupting chemicals and this is what led me into this first foray into, into endocrine disruptors, where I still sit today in terms of studying. In terms of how BPA and phthalates could affect development, you were looking at obesity and ADHD? So I really started by studying these potential neurotoxics and focusing on BPA specifically in the beginning. We were the first study looking at the potential neurotoxicity of BPA, prenatal BPA exposure in humans, and finding that Girls with the higher exposure during pregnancy seem to have more aggressive and hyperactive behaviors when they were two and three years of age. And where we saw no associations between mom's BPA exposure during pregnancy and aggressive or hyperactive behaviors in the, in the boys. We've extended that, though, to look at other endpoints like adiposity and then also look at other chemicals. And in terms of the BPA work, by and large, we have not found that it seems to be a chemical obesogen, which is a class of chemicals that may cause the developing fetus or child to gain weight more rapidly or to have alterations in their metabolism such that they are predisposed to cardiometabolic disorders or to more rapid or to more fat mass gains. Okay, so BPA does not seem to be an obesogen. Not in the work that we've done in our study and in several other cohorts that, that have been done on this as well. It doesn't seem to be. If anything, there's maybe some suggestion that it is associated with slightly decreased weight early in life, mm -hmm. uh, at least prenatal exposure. And we've seen some evidence that maybe it's associated with changes in the growth trajectories of girls such that they, they grow a little differently. But it doesn't seem like it's causing children to become heavier, at least from the data we have so far. At the time I published my book, I don't remember the number, but I remember quoting 
something about the studies on BPA being, I think like 800, that there had been like 800 studies worldwide, peer-reviewed studies on BPA. And there is still no consensus on whether like current public exposures to BPA were harmful. And it did seem like within the United States, that was the general position. But outside the United States, there were authorities urging more caution. I think that BPA has been one of the more polarizing exposures in the field in terms of the opinions about its toxicity, with some people very adamantly believing that it's toxic for either one for one or more health endpoints. Other people being very adamant in believing that there is no evidence of toxicity at the levels that we're exposed to. And then there's people like me who try to sit in the middle and just do good science. And that's not to, to say anything negative about anyone's, any other people's science, but just try to do good science and let that speak for itself. I don't think it's clear if the levels that we're exposed to are toxic. I think there's some evidence for neurotoxicity associated with prenatal exposure. There's a variety of studies with showing some signals where they, there may be an association between prenatal or early childhood exposure and neurodevelopment, mm-hmm. but, but they're not all consistent. It's not like the studies of lead where we really observe very consistent findings between lead exposure and child cognitive abilities. It's not as clear cut as that. Mm-hmm. And the other piece of it, too, is that making, you know, these animal studies are difficult to interpret with respect to humans because we are, we're exposed to much, much lower levels than of BPA than are ever used in these animal studies, several orders of magnitude less. And that makes it difficult to extrapolate the doses being used in these animal studies down to the levels that we see in humans. Mm-hmm. Would you speak more about the challenges of studying something like BPA? Is there no debate on whether BPA is an endocrine disruptor? So, I mean, BPA is estrogenic. And in that definition of an endocrine disruptor, then it would be one. But it's the nuance to it is that it's whether it's a, a potent endocrine disruptor. Mm-hmm. And that is that it's strong in its effect. And that's where some of the debate lies. But it certainly is an estrogen. And in fact, it was investigated as an estrogenic compound in the early 1900s by Dodds and Lawson to determine whether it could be used as a synthetic estrogen for women, either during pregnancy or for other purposes. And Dodds and Lawson were actually the group that tested BPA and about 200 other compounds, including diethylstilbestrol or DES. And they found that, that BPA was just a much weaker estrogen or it had much weaker estrogenic effects in their assay than did these other compounds they tested, including DES. Okay. So given your expertise, and let's just take BPA, I'm wondering, we know BPA is found in some canned foods and it's in some plastics. So in your home, do you buy canned foods and do you use plastic containers? We haven't been using plastic for a long time. When I was doing this research as a graduate student, I phased the use of of our plastic containers out slowly and have switched to all glass. So we're buying large use glass for storing things. Cans are hard. My example is always, it's tough to make chili without canned foods. <laughs> um, I mean, you can do it, but it's a lot more work to, yeah. you know, to rehydrate beans and to get the tomatoes. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. So if I want to make chili very quickly, I'm going to buy some canned tomatoes and some canned beans. Mm-hmm. And so I try to be, I think in the last, you know, several years, we've really cut back on the amount of cans we use, but, you know, there are times when I have to use it. And the advice I give to, to people who are concerned about this is that the food that's in those cans, you know, canned beans, you know, beans, tomatoes, other vegetables, they're very good for you. We want people to eat those. 
So if you're not going to use canned foods, then you know don't replace that with something that's unhealthy. So I think that's that's the balance that people have to make is that when they do decide to make the choice that they're going to avoid BPA exposure from cans, then they're going to have to get that nutritious food from another source. And the question is just what's that trade-off? Is, is that trade-off worth it for them? And, and I think you can do reduce your exposure a little bit or enough to reduce your exposure some, and by and large still consume all the nutritious foods you want. It's just it requires you making that choice, expending some effort to do it. I love asking someone like you who is so immersed in the research on like BPA and phthalates and gaining insight on how you balance your knowledge with everyday life. I think what I've taken away from it over the years, because as I started doing a lot of this research, it's very easy to drive yourself crazy thinking about all the things you're exposed to and all the ways it could potentially be doing some harm to you and your family. You can make some choices to reduce your exposures. There's very nice studies that show that, that people can reduce their exposure to some chemicals through various interventions. But at the end of the day, I think what it really speaks to is that these shouldn't be decisions we leave to the individual. We should be having better policies and regulations that protect people from chemicals at the population level. So if we suspect that something like BPA is harmful, we should do something about it. So rather than leaving it to individuals to try to reduce their exposure, which they can do, but it's difficult, we should actually take action at the national level to to reduce exposures. I agree. It just seems really hard to enact those policies in the United States. And and that's, you know, the Europeans are ahead of us on that in that respect, in that their new legislation called REACH is supposed to make sure that all chemicals are tested before they enter the marketplace. Whereas here in the United States, the status quo until recently was that chemicals were innocent until proven guilty, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So there was little or no pre-market toxicity testing. Most of that did not involve testing for potential developmental toxicity to the fetus, so develop an infant or child. And so we don't really have very good information on a lot of these chemicals that are used. And as you said earlier, you know, there's there's tens of thousands. And the last number I actually saw from from EPA was over 80,000 being used in commerce. Mm-hmm. So it's overwhelming to the individual to try to reduce their exposure. And that's why we need good regulations to protect people. Absolutely. But in the meantime, there's a lot we can do because I remember when I was reading about this stuff, I definitely was upset that there wasn't more thoughtful regulation on these chemicals in the United States. But I also knew, well, now is my children's window of vulnerability. And it it seems like there are some choices we can make that will help. So for example, what you've done over years, and I have too, which is to phase out plastics as much as you can and use glass containers, but with a healthy balance and with like the canned foods cut down when it's not a big deal, but when we'll really add nutrition to your dinner, then then go for it. But being more mindful of it is helpful. No, and I think, you know, and it's not just limited to say the BPA and phthalates, you know, for things like pesticides, it's shown that you can reduce your exposure to pesticides by consuming organic foods. And there's been several intervention studies to show that people can do that. So I think that's another place where people can make a difference as well. Where it gets harder is for a lot of these chemicals that have very long half-lives in our body. So things like perfluoroalkyl substances or flame, some of the flame retardants, you know, they have they have biological half-lives, meaning on the order of years, meaning they stick around in us for a very long time. 
So it's, it's very hard for us to get rid of those exposures. And really, we don't know of any ways that we can get rid of those exposures as they're happening that are in us right now. So that, again, speaks to the fact that we need to prevent those exposures um, rather than let them happen and figure out how to deal with it on the back end. There was a study years ago, I think it was at Harvard, there was uh, the body burden of certain pesticides were measured before the study and then at the end, and I think it was a five-day study, and they found that by the participants eating a purely organic diet with foods not from canned, like fresh whole foods, not around plastics, the level of pesticides, and I don't know if there's another one on BPA, but the point is that with some chemicals in the body, when you do make changes like choosing to eat more organic foods, the pesticide levels in your body can decrease. Yeah, so there was a study by Alex Liu and his colleagues looking at pesticide exposures and, and switching to away from pesticide-containing foods and showing that. And there was another study out of the Silent Spring Institute by Ruthanne Rudell where they did an intervention study, a small intervention study, and got families to switch to non-plastic, to foods not stored or, or processed in plastics. I believe they did organic as well. And they showed there that they could reduce uh, the urine levels of BPA and some of the phthalates in those participants during that intervention period. So it's remarkably effective. I mean, the other studies that have been done there, the one other study that's been done that's sort of interesting is that there was a German group where they had five people fast for, I think, I think it was a full day, if not two days. And the only people I can imagine doing this would be the people working in the lab group. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so some poor, some poor souls had to suffer through a day without eating. They were allowed to drink water and that sort of thing. But their BPA levels plummeted remarkably during that period of fasting because most of our exposure is from the diet. So we know we can make a real difference in our exposure to the diet. And I think that's part of the key message if we want to do something regulatory-wise that we can probably do it by intervening on diet. Yeah, but also as a consumer, if you make different choices, your body can decrease its load of chemicals like BPA and the pesticides, right? If you cut down on the input into your body, then your body is able to flush out some of them. Yeah, so, so for these chemicals like BPA and phthalates, they have very short half-lives in our body, meaning they don't stay in us long. So something like BPA has a half-life of about six hours. So that means that after about 30 hours, we've gotten rid of over 95% of the BPA that was in us before. So BPA, we can, we can reduce our body burden of that quite quickly. Phthalates are similar. They have half-lives of 6 to 24 hours. So you know, if we stop our exposure to those, we can reduce it, our body burden considerably in the course of a day or a couple of days. It's these other chemicals that have these long half-lives that are really challenging to do something about because they leave our body very slowly, taking years just to decrease their, the amount by half. So it's those chemicals that are really challenging for us. And, and we don't have good interventions to deal with those yet. But there are people thinking about that and, and working on ways to reduce our, either reduce our exposure to them or to, or to try to help us get rid of them faster. And what do we know now about the potential health effects from phthalates in our bodies? So the phthalates are, are interesting in that, you know, the, in the rodents studies that have been done, there's very compelling evidence that phthalates are anti-androgenic, meaning they, they 
decriminate, they seem to be associated with a decrease in the synthesis of testosterone in, in rodents, particularly in male rodents. And those phthalate exposures in male rodents are associated with genital abnormalities as well as other problems with the male reproductive system. And there seems to be some evidence in human studies that's consistent with this, suggesting that phthalate exposures have an anti-androgenic effect on, on the developing fetus, and the, particularly the male fetus. And this work is being extended now to look at other endpoints like, neuro, like neurodevelopment as well as adiposity. And, you know, there seems to be some good evidence suggesting that the phthalates may be associated with some neurobehavioral problems, a wide range of them, as well as decreases in IQ or, or cognitive abilities. At least several years ago, there were, there were a series of good studies done by a group in, the, in Europe showing that childhood phthalate exposure seemed to be associated with allergic diseases as well as asthma. So there's a, a wide range of potential effects that phthalates could have on human health, both from prenatal exposures and early childhood exposures. And do you know if there have been studies on whether affected children were had improved symptoms if their phthalate exposures were reduced? So that hasn't been done, and that's a really I mean that's a very good idea for some of these for some of these health endpoints like things like allergic diseases or symptoms of asthma. I'm not aware of anyone who's done that yet, but that would be a very clever study to do for some of these things that have you know flare ups, so to speak, of symptoms that become more pronounced from certain things. Whether if you can reduce exposure, whether that would improve someone's symptoms, and that'd be a very powerful design of a study because it would imply some level of causal. It could be, it'd be more right. common, but it could be causal. So. Right. So you went from studying lead and tobacco to BPA and phthalates. And then did you move on from that group? Well, so we, we're still somewhat looking at BPA, but we're, we really moved into looking at phthalates and triclosan, as well as the perfluoroalkyl substances. And now I've been doing more work looking at some of these new replacement flame retardants, both the replacement flame retardants as well as some of the established flame or older flame retardants that have been used but are being phased out of production. For those listening, a lot of these chemical names are unfamiliar, but the chemicals you've talked about, like what are common products that they're used in? It varies by chemical. And so I will say, you know, that not all of these are used in everything, but some, but for things like phthalates, they're used in a wider, they can be used in some plastics and some medications and pharmaceuticals. They're used in some personal care products as a scent retainer. Things like bisphenol A are used in, in plastics and resins. Some of the, the triclosan and some of the anti, other antimicrobials can be used in hand soaps. Well, triclosan was actually recently banned from use in, in hand soaps but it's still used in toothpastes, in some toothpastes. And things like the, the flame retardants are found in things like foam furniture, also found in electronics, carpet padding, and it's even found in some things like baby products in order to meet certain flame retardancy standards. So, you know, these things are, all of these chemicals are in a lot of different products we use and, you know, different chemicals and different products, but by and large, we're, we're exposed to lots of them on a daily basis. Would you speak more about replacement chemicals? Because you mentioned you were studying flame retardants that used to be widely used. And, and I think you said you're looking at replacement flame retardants. Yeah. So I think this is really an important topic right now because I think a lot of manufacturers, retailers are very aware of consumers' concern about the potential health effects of these chemicals. And uh, Walmart, uh, 
how NASA lists of chemicals that was going to try to phase out of its stores over the next several years. And, you know, Walmart has enormous sway in the marketplace because they purchase so much, so many products and then sell them. So they demand that a certain company quits using something like triclosan or parabens, the market will follow and stop using it. So I think that's one driving force behind this, as well as, you know, what I refer to sort of as the mommy bloggers who have really gotten very involved in raising awareness about this. And so chemical companies, retailers, producers, they're all very aware of this, you know, but they still need chemicals in their products. And so the flame retardants are a great example where for years and decades, actually, these very uh, persistent polybrominated diphenyl ethers were used as flame retardants in foam furniture, as well as carpets and electronics. And in response to mounting evidence that they were persistent and potentially harmful to our health, the manufacturers switched to a different set of compounds. And of course, these other compounds have never been tested for or have less testing on them for their potential toxicity. So almost overnight, now you have a whole new set of chemicals out there in the marketplace that we know little to nothing about. We, we don't even know if we're exposed to them to begin with. And that makes it very challenging as the scientists who are trying to study this in, in terms of figuring out, is, is this something we should be concerned about? And it's not just limited to flame retardants. This happens for other chemicals as well, whether things like phthalates, instead of using phthalates, they might use a compound that looks a lot like that phthalate, but is just very subtly different from that phthalate chemical. It must have been 10 years ago, I was just learning about the idea that there are toxic chemicals in everyday products. And I was looking for a crib mattress and I was in the middle of trying to understand how do I identify a safe crib mattress for my daughter. And I got connected to a store owner in San Francisco who said that, and I've never heard this before, but it made a lot of sense and it stuck with me. He said that when a chemical starts being associated with a strong like proof of harm or you know, emerging evidence that indicates harm, the chemical companies will just tweak the chemical structure of that chemical a little bit and rename it and then use that. And so this new chemical has no history of harm because it's brand new, but it's chemically not that different from some chemicals that we maybe know are harmful. Do you think that's true? Well, I, I can't speak to, you know, what the particular person said, but I do know from phthalates that is the case for one particular phthalate, diethyl hexophthalate, been shown to be anti-androgenic in, in rodents. You know, after a very large number of studies have shown potential health effects of this particular phthalate, they've now switched to a, a chemical that's virtually identical to it in structure, with the exception that it has some additional hydrogen atoms on it. So it's much like what you spoke of, where they just alter it just a tiny bit and tweak it, and it does the same thing the other one did, but we don't know anything about its, its potential toxicity. What about like BPA-free products? Some of them contain this chemical BPF. Are you familiar with how similar BPS may be to BPA? And, and no, and that's, a, that's another great example where, you know, they just swim, you know, the, it's, it's a drop-in replacement, so to speak, where you, you just substitute one very similar chemical in for another. And, and BPS is another great example of that. And if we don't have good health data. There's some people that have done, been able to respond to that change and do some 
of experimental studies in rodents or in these in vitro systems and show that maybe these chemicals could be as harmful as BPA um, in, certain, in certain model organism systems, but we don't have any good human health data. And there's people trying to figure that out, but you know it's a long game that you play to do that, right? Because to do these sorts of studies well, it takes years. And you know these, these manufacturers can switch these chemicals in and out you know, in a much shorter time frame. And so we're always playing catch up. I refer to this as the chemical whack-a-mole game. You know, you hit one of them down and another one pops up somewhere else. You hit the other, hit that one down and another one pops up and you just keep playing the game. And you're not going to win at it because the the moles are going to just always keep popping back up. What do we know as a community about obesogens? So there's been a considerable number of studies on some of the, what I call legacy chemicals, things like polychlorinated biphenyls and some of the old organochlorine pesticides with some evidence that they may be obesogenic. But there's been less on some of the more contemporary chemicals that we that we worry about, like BPA and phthalates, although our group and others have, have contributed to that literature considerably in the last few years. And, you know, the evidence, it depends on the chemical you're talking about, but there does seem to be some evidence that some chemicals could be obesogenic. Even some of our well-established endocrine disruptors like DES seems to be obesogenic. So it seems plausible that DES may have some obesogenic effects, then maybe some of these other chemicals could also be associated with obesity. And I think the ones that I personally think there's strong evidence for are things like the perfluorohalto substances, I think are particularly concerning with regard to obesity. And we're doing some studies on that right now to, to look into this, as are others. And, and that body of evidence has really grown in the last few years to suggest that maybe there are some obesogenic effects of that chemical glass on Humans. Is the acronym for that PFOS? PFAS. PFAS. Okay. And in what kind of products are those used in? So the perfluoro alpha substances are, are used in a lot of different commercial and even some industrial applications. So they, in commercial products, they're used to make stain and water repellent coatings. So things, so thinking like Gore-Tex or Scotchgard, uh, which is applied to fabrics. They're used to make things that help repel water and, and, and oils from a, a textile. They're also used in some firefighting foams, especially for, for certain chemical fires. They're, they're very good at putting fires out. And then they're also used in industry as a surfactant when you're making these floral polymers. And these chemicals get released into the environment when they're being used to make these different products, or they can do, um, form when they degrade from other products that they're used in. So we think exposure is predominantly from the diet in most people because these chemicals seem to, this class of chemicals seems to bioaccumulate through the food chain. So levels of it get higher as you go further up the food chain. Humans being the sort of apex predator of the planet right now consume a lot of things that would have high levels of this. There have been some cases where contaminated water is a major source. There have been several instances where these chemicals end up in local water supplies and resulting in populations having very high exposure to these chemicals. So that's another potential concern. It's probably less of a contribution for most of us on a day-to-day basis. What have we learned about neurodevelopment? I think what we know is that there's a wide range of chemicals that seem to be associated with a variety of neurodevelopmental disorders. And I think where the evidence is, is stronger is for things like pesticide exposures being associated with possibly increased risk of autism spectrum disorders, as well as 
other behavioral disorders like ADHD. And then for some of these other chemicals of emerging concern, I think the evidence is not clear yet, but there's in some cases, like for bisphenol A, there's suggestion in that literature that this chemical may be a neurotoxic. And then for others, we don't have a lot of data yet to make some any firm conclusions. I mean, we know for some very established neurotoxicants like lead and PCBs and methylmercury. So, you know, in those cases, we have very good evidence to make those conclusions. We're just not there yet for some of these other ones. As an epidemiologist and a researcher, how do you feel about our resiliency? I think that's a really interesting question. It's one we're starting to think about more in, in our group uh, in terms of, you know, can we adapt to these exposures? Or in thinking, too, about children in that, you know, they're amazing in that they can take these, these stressors and adapt to them. I think we're asking... I'm sorry, what do you mean by that? So, for instance, in terms of brain development. So, the developing brain is really is in a very plastic state. It's changing. And the hypothesis that maybe because it's in this very plastic state, it can adapt to a stressor. So, for instance, children might be able to, in the clinical case, they may be able to recover better from some sort of lesion in their brain if they had, a, for instance, a traumatic head injury or a mild head injury. But we don't know this for chemicals. We don't know whether or not children could get better. And I think that's really what I'm thinking about with this, is that is there an ability to, in a way, a resiliency to these exposures where children might be able to compensate in some other way and adapt to exposures, not in an evolutionary sense. Yeah. You know, from reports I had read, I kept reading about children being uniquely vulnerable to certain things, like certain toxic exposures, like lead. But I one time spoke to a geneticist, I wish I remembered her name, We spoke briefly and she made a comment that, no, children are much more resilient than adults are. And it confused me because it was in conflict with most of what I read. But I thought, but I know she's from the perspective of genetics. And I was just, I don't know if you have any insight on that, that children can be both, can be more vulnerable in some ways than adults, but also more resilient. Well, and I think, and and that, yeah, it's it's a little bit of a paradox there, but I think there's so much of it depends on the severity of any sort of stressor in terms of its effect on on the developing nervous system, as well as where that child is in age and and, and probably in some ways related to their functional capacity to deal with those stressors. I think one of the examples of where resiliency comes in is some work that's done by Tom Giarte and his colleagues when um, he's at, I believe he's at University of Florida now, but used to be at Columbia when he did this work. And he showed that in lead-exposed rodents, he could actually buffer the effects of lead by giving the rodents an enriched environment. Yeah. So normally rodents are stored in these very sterile-looking plastic cages with some food pellets hanging in there and some water. And instead of storing the rodents in those cages like that, he would he would give them these very enriched environments where they have little logs to climb in and you know grass and other things for the rodents to do and play with. And it seemed to make a difference in terms of the effects of lead on these rodents in neurodevelopment. And I think we I know very few people have asked that in humans and said, you know, does an enriching environment seem to buffer some of the effects of neurotoxic exposures on brain development? But that could lead to interventions that could help us deal with the potential effects of these chemicals. Yeah, I have read about breast milk and breastfeeding also providing some protective benefits. I don't remember against which chemicals and also maybe folate and like spinach. 
But some studies are out there, but probably it's not a strong enough body of science. No, it really has not taken hold yet, and I'm not sure why. But I think it's something that is worth looking at more because we just, you know, if, if we're not going to be doing something about preventing exposure to chemicals, if, if we're going to maintain the status quo, then we need to have some ways to mitigate the effects that they could have on children on the, after the exposure occurs. And, and those are the types of studies that we need to do, whether it's you know, breastfeeding, micronutrient support, or an enriched environment. I'm so curious how someone like you applies what you know into your everyday life. One question I have is, do you drink filtered water? Yeah, so we do use a water filter at home, and, and I do suggest to people if they're concerned about water contaminants in their water to use one. I think the key to them is just remembering that if you install the filter, you have to use it, and you have to maintain it. So, you know, those filters need to be changed periodically in order to be effective. So that's it's just, again, a little more commitment on your part, but I think it's something that is a relatively low-cost, low-burden thing that people can do if they're concerned about exposures from water. So what would be like your top three to five tips on what people can do that are practical and high impact? In no specific order, I, I would think filtered water and using a tap filter. I think you know reducing exposure to canned foods and plastics in general when possible. I think trying to, if, if you can, you know, not having a lot of carpets in the home. Carpets tend to be a nice reservoir for lots of chemicals that float around in the air and the dust. So if you can get away without having lots of carpeting, there can be a bonus there that you don't have as much of the dust that might contain those chemicals floating around. And if you do have a lot of dust, trying to do wet mopping um, of hardwood floors or HEPA vacuuming of, of carpeted floors. And that's, I think the HEPA vacuum is, is, a, is a good one as well, because that's going to help make sure that you, you're not shooting all of that hot air with all of the dust in and out of the back end of your vacuum, that they'll get trapped in that filter. Those would be sort of the, the major ones. I think, you know, if someone can afford it, you know, eating organic is, would be worthwhile to reduce pesticide exposures. Again, that's, you know, that's another one of those sort of cost benefits where you know, the cost of organic foods is unfortunately considerably higher than conventionally grown foods. So for some people, that's just not something practical. Mm -hmm. Thanks for tuning in. Join me on my journey for practical, non-toxic living. Register to enter my detox community at www.nontoxicliving.tips where you can find podcast show notes, links, and additional free information about practical non-toxic living. That's www.nontoxicliving.tips. Until next time.